Well, it is a good morning, and this is a day to celebrate our moms in our lives. Uh, I've had many of them in my life. I mean, when I say that is there's, God's placed a lot of women in my life that have really spoken into my life and have offered spiritual wisdom and guidance, and not the least of which is my mother, who is in Kansas City right now uh, away, and probably watching with my grandmother and my aunt, and so happy Mother's Day to them, and uh, anxious for them to be returning home soon. And so uh, to all of you here, I recognize Mother's Day is kind of where we begin to start transitioning into being away. And so some of you I may not see again until August, so... Hello and goodbye. But uh, no, I just want to remind you that we live stream every, every service and uh, you can watch it live or you can watch it on replay uh, throughout the week because we don't want you missing out on what's being taught here. So you can stay tethered and connected to what the church is teaching on. And so we'll be in James through the second week of July. And then we're going to do eight weeks in the book of Proverbs. Uh, we're not going to teach all, all 31 chapters. It's going to be, each week is going to be a particular proverb that means a lot to the person that's going to be speaking that morning and how it gets utilized. And so uh, that will begin in, in mid-July and we'll go through Labor Day weekend. And then beginning in the second Sunday in uh, September, we're going to go to the book of Genesis. Uh, we haven't taught Genesis, at least to my knowledge, here on a Sunday morning, part of our services, I don't think ever. And, uh, but more than ever, I would say it's needed. Here's why. How do you explain who God is and his desire for a relationship with us without Genesis? How do you explain sin and how it separates us from God without going to Genesis? How can you explain how God then was able to bridge and reconcile mankind and redeem it without there being a foreshadowing and an explanation without going to Genesis? And then to understand why Jesus was as Jesus is, because we can see that from Genesis. And so it's literally the context by which we can understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to begin that in September. It'll go through most of the uh, next school year. There's a lot there. It's a, a lot of things we'll learn from that, from the patriarchs going back into the beginnings. And uh, so it'll be a lot of fun to go there. And uh, it will also be interesting how that contrasts with how the world is taught uh, about in, in, uh, beginnings, uh, because obviously it's very different. And so we'll be able to do that beginning in the fall. So I hope you will join us. And so if you're not planning to be here till next August, uh, you'll be showing up just in time uh, for Proverbs and then going into Genesis. So to, uh, encourage you to, to live stream with us even while you're away. Having said that, we always feel it's better being in the house. It's better worshiping in the house of God. It's better teaching uh, in, the, in the house of God. It's better to be interactive with the people of God. And so we always value this more highly. And so we're just glad for tools that our missionaries, our global partners throughout the world can listen in and worship with us. But they will even tell you there's no substitute them being with us. And uh, so having said that, we're going to go into the book of James and continue our series there. So if you'd open your Bibles to James, it's towards the end of your Bibles. If you get to Revelation, go left. If you get to Hebrews, go right. 
and uh, will be in this letter that was written by the leader of the church from Jerusalem, who even Peter appealed to on issues that they were struggling with in the early church. And James writes this letter to the church, even though as the church is scattered, uh, the, in particular the 12 tribes of Israel, it's scattered, but he recognizes that in this fledgling church, there are things that are rooted in us that can begin to war against this, this young faith. And that what wars against our young faith is the flesh, our nature. So even though when we give our lives to Jesus, he forgives us of our sins, he cleanses us, and he gives us the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live the way he would want us to live, the nature is still there. Paul talks about this in Romans, that the things I want to do, I don't want to do. The things I do want to do, I find myself not doing them. And so he finds this law of work is that sin is always there and warring against him in his flesh. And that is just true. In fact, John says, if you claim to be without sin now, like you, you don't ever sin again because of Jesus, he calls you a liar. It's like, no, sin still happens. It still happens, but the grace of God is sufficient. And we go to him, we confess to him, and he forgives. But what James does, that's why we call this series, giving it to us straight, is he pokes at the very things that war against this fledgling faith. Things that are inside of us, that are internal, that can become against our growing faith. He's calling those things out so that we can be wise and shrewd enough to work against those things so that we're walking with God and not against God. So the James begins with talking about how trials and the hardships of life shape us and help us grow stronger in reliance upon God and less reliance upon us. And then he transitions in chapter two to talking about the things that actually then work against that growing of faith. And he begins with this understanding that too often we go to scripture and we don't, we'll read it, but we don't let it provide the mirror effect where we let it reflect upon us what is going on in our lives. The word of God reflects God, but then it reveals where we're not with God. And so what James tells us to do is make sure when we read the word of God that we let ourselves receive it and let it reveal the things in us where our flesh might be working against God. So he begins with that mirror analogy to start and then goes into now, with a mirror, what it's revealing is your character that still needs work from God. But too often we think just looking at the superficial, the, the surface, and we begin to value things as the world values. As long as you dress right, you drive the right car, you have the right house, or you do the right things, all those appearance things, and we think that that shows who's really put together. And we begin to value such people that have it all together by appearances, we tend to value them more highly in the church sometimes. And James says, no, favoritism within the body of Christ does not, uh, is not of God. In fact, he, God looks upon the heart, not the external. And so with that in mind, James then says, okay, so we have this faith that you state and you say with your mouth, I have faith, but there is no response within your life that suggests you're living by that faith. James bluntly says, it's no real true faith. It's not real faith if there is no application, no applied living by faith being evident in your life. You can claim whatever you want. You can claim to be Christian. 
In fact, 80% of America claims and identifies as being Christian. Do you see evidence that 80% of America is Christian? No, we, we don't. And my guess is that if we were to ask people, just of the several hundred people here in this room, if we were to ask them, do they see evidence of your self-identified faith as being Christian to say that, yeah, that person lives by faith. And it's not gonna be 100%. It's likely to be lower. And what James says is, listen, it's one thing to state that you are identify as being Christian or a follower of Christ. But it's another thing to have true saving faith where you are living by faith, where you place yourself and entrust yourself into the work of Jesus Christ in your life. And then we go on to talking about the tongue and a couple weeks ago and that the tongue is literally the evidences. Again, if the tongue is becoming more and more controlled, that's the evidence of faith being worked out inside of you. Because from out of the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. So what the mouth speaks is going to give evidence as to what's going on inside of you, right? And so James is highlighting that, okay, if we're going to look in the mirror, we're going to start looking. Are, are we seeing, letting the mirror reflect and reveal what is truly inside of you? Are we seeing that there is faith that is becoming evident because you're truly trusting God? Is the tongue being willing to come under the authority of God where you're willing to let it be under the authority of of Scripture and of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus? And then lastly, what we looked at is ambition. The world says that you should go after whatever it is that makes you feel happy or go whatever that you're gifted to do and find the greatest success for it. Uh, pursue it with, all, with reckless abandon. And it doesn't matter if a few people get hurt along the way. The key thing is, is did the end game, your goals, truly get achieved? And what we realize is there really are two paths of success. By the world standards, it gets more and more self-centered. And as it goes further and further, that person is gonna have fewer and fewer people that would call them friend. Because along the way, it's all about that person's own achievements. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt along the way. Whereas God's design is, is that, yeah, you're designed to do something, you're designed to achieve certain things, but as you do so, you're also taking others with you. Because that's God's design for how things should be. And the person that's successful like that has many friends at the end because they've all succeeded. When somebody is in leadership and it's all about them, they create a culture around them. Sometimes they're the head of a household. Sometimes they're head of a small business. Sometimes they're in middle management. But if they are all about their own climb of the corporate ladder or their own status within the family, whatever it may be, if it's all about them, they have created a culture where chaos is the rule of the day. Because in order to survive in such a culture, you have to start looking out for yourself. And... James says it provides a seedbed. It provides the soil then for all kinds of evil practice. Which then brings us into today. If these are the things that cause our faith to be hindered and to not thrive, today he gets into how that manifests relationally. How it manifests relationally and it causes tension between each of us and, more importantly, it identifies as creating tension between us and God. 
What we're going to discover today is that James says, depending on what your value system is, if you're truly living by faith, then you are working with God and for God. But if you are not, you're going to find yourself that you're working against God. So let's go to James chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1, and James begins with a question that addresses the issue that's at play relationally. Again, he's talking to the church, and so what he is asking of the church is apparently there's something going on from within that he's identifying. So look at verse 1. The question is, what causes fights and quarrels among you? So he's talking to the church. Clearly there's fights and there's quarrels within the church that's happening. What causes those fights and quarrels? Again, continue on. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you ask because you do not ask of God. But when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives and you, that you might spend what you receive on your own pleasures. Verse four, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God, which by the way, is a state of war. So enmity means it's a, it's a situation where there is an environment now of conflict. Better stated that if we have friendship with the world, we are now at war with God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or don't you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now I'm gonna take a little bit of a guess here that nobody chose to wake up this morning and meditate and memorize verse nine. All right, look what it says. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Grieve, mourn, and wail. And then it says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That feels good, doesn't it? And I get the privilege to teach that to you today. But you're gonna find that there's, there's without context, you're gonna think that this is a downtrodden or a very gloomy message. And it's not at all, but it is challenging. Because again, James is not pulling punches. He is giving it to us straight. He wants to make sure that our faith does not become weak and hindered. And so he's gonna address some things that's gonna make us feel uncomfortable. And he begins in verse one with saying, do you know what causes relational conflict within the church? 
Do you know? He says, it's your desires. It's your wants. And basically stating, your desires or wants are literally are the cause for every relational battle between not only you and God, but between each other. Now, sometimes we're the victim of it. Not always are we the instigator, but every relational broken situation that we have within the church can be traced back to somebody placing their own personal desires and their wants ahead of anybody else. Ouch. Because my guess is, is that there are people here in this room and the vast majority of us can say, there's at least one person right now that we're not in relational accord with that calls themselves Christian. Which then means we have to go back and say, is it my desires that are causing this relational conflict? Or perhaps is it theirs or maybe is it both? So now, Let's go in, into what he defines as relational desires and what happens and why these conflicts happen. So verse two, he says, you desire, but you do not have. So you kill. Or in other words, you destroy, you harm, you render ineffective. So an easy one to give as an example out of scripture is, all right, so what does it look like that you there's something out there that you want, but it's not yours. You don't currently have it, but you feel like there's an opportunity that you could get it. But in order to do that, you have to destroy something. David and Bathsheba would be a great example. David saw Bathsheba. He wanted Bathsheba, but Bathsheba was not his. It was Uriah's wife. So Uriah stands in the way of something David wants. So what does David do? He kills Uriah. And then he gets Bathsheba. Now, that's a very literal example of what it says here. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. But let me kind of make it a little bit more applicable to us, because I'm guessing nobody here in this room has killed somebody. I really hope that's the case. Security, watch for my hand signals. All right, so here we go been in sports a lot of my life, either as coach or as participant. Now, obviously, more coaching than participating as of late. I'm no, I no longer have the vertical jump that would be measurable, and nor do I have the ability to run where you would even bother to turn on the clock. But I have been around it long enough to know that athletes can be some of the biggest jerks around. Because if somebody has the position you want, What do you do? They've got it. They're the starter. You're not. You tend to demean that person. You try to get in their head. You speak things about them that is not good. You try to get others to think the same way you do. You hope that the coach sees it the way you do. So you tear them down and you create a culture of tearing them down and destroying them and their strength of confidence and therefore giving yourself a shot to actually seize the position. Very common in athletics. Sometimes I've been the one to do that. Other times I've been the victim of it. Common. Human, I would say. Well, let's bring it to dating relationships. I really like that girl, but she's dating somebody else. 
smear the guy, I get the girl. It's true. Happens. And it doesn't just happen among teenagers and college students. It happens even among adults. We try to a character assassination approach to maybe where the girl would get rid of him. And you can, verse, you can switch this, girl or guy. I'm speaking from the guy's point of view. But it happens. And we don't care what we do to their character. How about promotions? You know that there's a position out there where somebody's going to get the job. But you know the leading candidate is probably not you. Or maybe your greatest threat to you getting it is this other individual. So what do you do? You start campaigning. Usually not for how good you are, but how bad they are. You destroy because you want what you do not yet have. And if you destroy that person, you can get. Now, where we see this, and when it's very evident, is politics. What do politicians' number one, what are politicians' number one strategy for defeating another candidate? Smear campaigns. We see this all the time. And I would like to say that there is a difference between Christian politicians and non-Christian politicians. Not true either. We've even seen that locally, where to get a seat, we'll smear another Christian's good name for the sake of getting the seat. Now, I think it is fair game to confront each other's policies. Fair game. But to smear character, to lower one's view and standing so that you can gain, not of God, period. It's not of God. Look what it says here. What causes fights and quarrels among you begins with desires. These desires begin with the desire to have something that you do not have. So what do you do? You destroy. He goes on to explain even further. There are some things you do desire but do not have and cannot have. It says you covet but you cannot get what you want. Like it's not going to ever be yours. But you want it. So what do you do? It says you quarrel and fight. In other words, you become the antagonist. If you can't have it, then you're at least gonna make them miserable why they have it. You're not gonna make them successful. In fact, you might even try to undermine them. Happens relationally all the time. Then it says, thirdly, here's another way where this idea where desires, our personal desires cause conflict within the church is when we act first and ask God later. We act first, we get into it and realize this isn't going so well. Let me call in reinforcements. God, why don't you help me have success here? And God's looking at us like, you got yourself out there on your own. This is not what I want. So we ask of God, and, 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 and that's only furthering in this case because we're asking him to jump in on something we don't even care about. He doesn't even care about. Look at verse three. In response to that idea of asking God for something, it says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, and rhetorical will be the wrong, wrong term. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to respond. 
If we are to operate where our desires are what leads us, and that's how we apply our daily living, that it's all about our desires and how that leads us, are we with God or are we against him? So with him or against him? Say it out loud. Against him. If desires, if our personal desires are what's leading the way, we are against him. So verse three, and it says that when we incorporate within this journey of our desires to start asking God to help us out on it, it says we ask with wrong motives so that we can spend what he gives us to fulfill our own pleasures. So basically what he's saying, there are times where the effectivity of our prayers is a matter of what your end game is when you pray. If you want to understand where effectivity can happen in regards to prayer, you have to ask yourself, what's my end game? God's end game is this. His motive is, is that he wants to fulfill his work in building a family. We sang two songs in a row this morning that says, I am a child of God, and that God is making children and followers of himself. That's what God's desiring, is he's building a family. So anything that he's gonna respond to is gonna be to that end. And if all we're asking of God is to have him help us build our own empire, what motive would God or what incentive is there for God to even respond to such a question? That's like hitting God up for money or, or a loan that you're gonna then use that loan that he gives you to spend on a weapon that you're going to use against those he's trying to draw into his family. Why would he do that? Why would he give you a loan to build a weapon against those he's trying to save? I mean, we get frustrated when we watch the news and we find out that our government gave defense money to a, to a group several years ago that now all the things that we gave, the weapons and so on, is now being used against our very own troops. Happens. For whatever reason, a few years ago, we gave a group of F-16s to Iran. And now we're like, why in the world did we ever do that? Same thing with God. Why would God ever give you what you're asking for if it's going to be used against those he's trying to save? Why should he ever give that? Again, in verse 15 of chapter 3, when talking about selfish ambition, we learned last week that not only is it unspiritual, some of the selfish ambition that we do, it's not only unspiritual, it's earthly, but he then says it's demonic. So when we go to God asking for him to invest in our selfish pursuits, we are basically making a demonic request of God to serve our own end, to spend what he gives us, not for anything he's trying to accomplish, but for what we're trying to accomplish. So if we're doing that, if we are going to God with requests so that he can give us success on this earth that has nothing to do with what he's trying to accomplish, are we with him or are we against him? Against him. We're against him. Continuing on. Verse four. 
He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or state of war with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. Basically saying, if we approach God as an ally in our worldly pursuits to just simply grow our pocketbooks, to grow our companies, to grow our families, but have no desire to really truly living by faith and giving God the glory. We are approaching God as an ally in our worldly pursuits, which then will only lead to a greater divide between you and him. In fact, James calls such a person an adulterer. An adulterer. Now, speaking from a man's point of view in this moment, What woman, what wife would ever want to see a husband's mistress as being an ally? None. What wife would ever want to see the mistress to their husband as an ally? In other words, that They are going to be an ally to build my relationship with my husband to a greater strength. They are going to help me. Really? So that's what is being said here. You're trying to say to God that my worldly passions and desires that I'm all about, that trumps any desires and passions that you have for me, should be seen as an ally to your desire for what you want to see in my life. If that's the approach to God, are we with him or are we against him? Against him. Verse five, James is not holding back if you haven't, can't tell. Verse five, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? In other words, God has given his Holy Spirit to those who have come by faith into a relationship with Jesus. And then when the church who has been given that Holy Spirit chooses not to live according to that spirit, does that not arouse the jealousy of God when people fail to live by the spirit of God he gifted us? If we are living by the worldly principles that are out there and not listening to the spirit of God. Are we with God? Are we with him or are we against him? Come on, you gotta say it. Against him. Because this is gonna cement in our minds the reality. Verse, uh, verse six, look what it says. It says, but he gives us more grace. Thank the Lord, there's more grace. But it says this, God opposes the proud and gives favor to the humble. So in other words, a person that comes against God is one who lacks humility and are confident in themselves, not in what God can do on their behalf. And when we're self-confident, where we think we can initiate things and we go after things and then later ask God when it's not going so well, are we with him? Or are we against him? Against him. So then what will it take to get back on God's side? Verse seven, answering that question, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. So the first thing that it will take to get back on God's side, where he, where you're with God, you're not working against God, there is no longer a state of war with God, but you are walking with him, and he is your ally, and you are his. We must begin by rejecting Satan as your leader and making Jesus truly Lord of your life. Now, that may sound so cliche-ish, but let me emphasize how important the distinction between the two is. You're either submitting to one of them and resisting the other, or you're submitting to the other and resisting the other one. So my question to you, do you find in your life that you're more often than not resisting what God wants to do in your life. If you find there's a spirit of resistance to what God wants to do in your life, then I can already tell you who's your Lord. You're submitting to the very enemy of God. You see, whoever's Lord, the other becomes the one you resist. So if you are submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ and rejecting Satan as your leader, are you with God or are you against him? You're with him. You're with him. Did I say it right? I heard somebody say it wrong. Just to make sure I got it right. If we're rejecting Satan and receiving Jesus as Lord, are we with God or are we against him? With him. Right. Second, verse eight, verse eight, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Come near to God. It's really simple. Reject Satan as leader, make Jesus Lord, and then draw near to God in that pursuit. Draw near to him. This wash your hands is a commitment to saying, I commit myself to living life where faith is evident. I'm committed to that. And that purifying the hearts is the making sure that the inner work of God continues. I'm committed to that. And that double-minded statement is to stop draw, adopting both the world's values and God's values. They are at war with each other. Choose the one and if you choose God as the one you draw near to, are you with him or are you against him? You're with him. Lastly, verses nine and 10. This is where I spoke earlier. It's not exactly great verse in not verse nine, but 10 is so important. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You see that grieving is to regret your sin. The mourning is to no longer celebrate your sin. The wailing is to reject the sin. And then we lay these things before the Lord in humility. And this is where the third point becomes, becomes real. Then we let God lift us up by our bootstraps. You see, a couple weeks ago, Jeff mentioned when talking about the tongue, this isn't a try harder faith. 
This isn't about you picking up yourself by your bootstraps so that you can impress God. No, Jesus and the Father God have said, no, this is a work they will do. They will lift you up. They will be the ones to pick you up. So let God pick you up by your bootstraps and then you will find that you're with God, not against him. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm thankful for the work you've done. And I am thankful that you sent the Holy Spirit because everything that was just said today would be an absolute failure if it was done in our own strength. So work in our hearts now. Let the word of God be a mirror to us to reveal to us the issues in our soul that needs addressed. And then lay, may, help us to become humble, to lay those things at your feet and let you pick us up. So do that work now, Lord, as we sing this final song in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the beautiful parts of scripture is that every single time someone runs in surrender and submission to God, the response is joyful acceptance. When the prodigal son returns, God says, look, it is my son whom I love. So let's stand, let's run into the arms of joyful acceptance this morning. closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my sin. You are peace, you are peace, when my fear is crippling. You are true, you are true, even in my wandering. You are joy, you are joy, you're the reason I sing, you are life, you are life, in you death has lost its sting. And oh, I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms, the riches of your love will always be enough, nothing compares to your
invite us in this moment before we sing these next words to just reflect on the state of your heart. Reflect on the question, who are you submitting to and who are you resisting? As we prepare to sing the words, my heart will sing no other name but Jesus. Let's just acknowledge what other names are calling for our heart. Let's push them to the side and let Jesus have his way. Sing this together. My heart will sing no other name, Jesus, Jesus. My heart will sing no other name, Jesus, Jesus. My heart will sing. Verse six that we read today. But, and I appreciate these conjunctions, but he gives us more grace. I didn't emphasize that in the sermon because I wanted to end there. He gives us more grace. In other words, he extends to us forgiveness and mercy even though we don't deserve it. Because God doesn't want to be against us. He is for us and he wants to draw us into himself. And we're like that child as a parent that when you're trying to love on that child and they just keep rejecting you, you as a parent don't give up, nor does God. You keep loving, you keep inviting and that's what God does and his grace is sufficient. If you came into this room not having a relationship with Jesus Christ, the beautiful thing is, is that while we all have that nature we've talked about today, 
But those who are with Jesus that are, have given their lives to him have been given a tremendous forgiveness, a tremendous grace, but also been given the Holy Spirit who helps us, empowers us to live a life that would be impossible otherwise. So we invite you into that same relationship to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that you are a sinner in need of his saving. Confess your sins to him and he says he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then you get to join the family that we talked about today, becoming that child of God. To the church, those of you who already call him Lord, let's reject the mistress. Let's reject the mistress that we give ourselves to and pursue things that are of worldly gain that have nothing to do that is of benefit. And again, God wants us to be successful in life, but it's what for what purpose? For what purpose? We can be successful business people. We can be successful parents when the purposes of God are what's at play. Let's reject and resist the devil and let's cling to the lordship of Jesus. And then we'll be with God. And let me tell you, it's a lot more smoother sailing when you're with God than when you're against him. So having said that, walk in the winds of God and in the name of Jesus, declare him Lord. Amen. We have a baptism that will be happening right after this service in about 15, 20 minutes. And I get the privilege of baptizing one of my neighbors. And so I'd love for you to hear that story. It's a beautiful story. God bless. Have a great rest of your week.